0: Good evening, everyone. Good evening. Welcome to our Nativity retreat uh, with Dr. Tim Petitzas. I'll give you a brief introduction. He is—he uh, was born in Akron, Ohio, and raised in the nearby university town of Kent. He attained his bachelor's degree from Georgetown University, the foreign school of foreign service, his M.Div. from Holy Cross Greek Orthodox School of Theology and his doctorate in systematic theology from the Catholic University of America. Dr. Petitsis has been Assistant Professor of Orthodox Christian Ethics at Holy Cross Greek Orthodox School of Theology in Massachusetts since 2005. Before joining the seminary faculty, he taught at the St. Nicholas Orthodox Seminary in Seoul, Korea, and at Marymount University in Arlington, Virginia. Since 2007, he's been responsible for the organization of the St. Helens Pilgrimage, the seminary's summer study abroad program in Greece, the Holy Land, Constantinople, and on the Holy Mountain. He is also a frequent pilgrim to Russia. His forthcoming book, The Ethics of Beauty, is due to be published in early 2019 with St. Nicholas Press. He has a YouTube channel called Sparrow Reaching. With a few Orthodox Christian songs, he has composed over the years. Professor Petitsa serves on the boards of the Russian, Orth- the Russian Orphan Opportunity Fund, the Center for Byzantine Material Arts, and the Road to Emmaus Foundation. And personally, he was uh, one of my beloved professors in seminary, as well as Steve Tussings. And the Petitsas name is one of those names at the seminary. How many brothers do you have?
1: Um, a lot of them, four.
0: Four brothers? And how many went to seminary?
1: Three of them plus me.
0: Four, yeah, four out of five Petitsas brothers. So, uh, and uh, two as priests? Three Three as priests. So, uh, uh, wonderful, and and we see from that also that not only is he well-educated, but he is well-versed in the faith, coming from a very faithful family that has produced faithful sons. So, we welcome Dr. Tim here for the first time, hopefully not the last, and we look forward to all that he has to offer. Thank you.
1: I think I have the uh, I turned on the mic, so we 'll see about the um, the levels and I, I guess I should talk so you can you can measure the levels, yeah. Thank you, Neil. Thank you, Father Matthew, very much for bringing me out here to Portland, Oregon. Uh, I've never been to the parish before. I've only driven through the city once, um, and it's it's nice. I've heard so many nice things about this community um, and about the people here. And this morning, I got a, a wonderful tour of your um, your school, and that's very impressive. And not many parishes have anything like that. And uh, it's really very, very impressive everything that you've done with your, your facility here and your community. And um, I congratulate you. Um, I ask your uh, goodwill and prayers for our seminary in Boston and for me tonight as I address this topic of beauty and the Orthodox way. I want to start with a story that... Um, was sort of making the rounds uh, in a certain kind of literature in the in the mid to late 1980s. I don't know if it really happened or if it's a, an apocryphal story, but it concerns uh, the Native Americans to the north of here, the Yakima, is that how you pronounce it, Indians? And uh, it's a very interesting story, and it goes that uh, apparently they were thinking of building some kind of a nuclear reactor or nuclear power plant or something like that in the area. And as they contemplated you know, taking that step, the engineers and the planners were thinking very much about... Well, let's, let's look out hundreds of years into the future that this site we're creating will have, uh, bear a certain deadly radioactivity. And how would we indicate to people who come here centuries from now that this particular area is, is not to be uh, you know, touched or that this particular spot of the earth is someplace dangerous? And they thought, well, we could just, you know, just write it down, just just have a sign. Maybe put the sign in bronze, or put the sign in some kind of steel or metal that isn't gonna uh, that's gonna last, or etch it in stone. And other people said, but how do we know that in 500 years they'll still be speaking English here? So what language should the warnings be in? And from there, the the reflection went in a different direction. They said, well, maybe what we need is uh, some kind of a symbol, you know, a skull and crossbones, or something that will frighten people or make people realize we're trying to warn them there's something dangerous here. But again, the symbols are so often dependent on culture, and so the, the conversation, again, ran aground. And... People said, well, how do we know that that symbol will mean anything to anyone? And then this is where the story gets uh, interesting uh, in a kind of more spiritual way. Um, because according to the, the legend or the story, um, some elders from the Yakima Indian tribes heard about this discussion. And reportedly, when they were told about this dilemma, they laughed. And someone said, well, why do you laugh? Why do you think this is a, a, a funny kind of dilemma? And they said, they will know in, in 500 or 1,000 years, they will know that it's dangerous, they said, because we will tell them. And, and that, that story, of course, touched and impressed a lot of people. And I said, I heard it in the late 1980s, and I don't know if it's completely true or not, But there's something to it, and it really was uh, something that touched my life, the idea that there can be repositories of, of knowledge or information that are older than we can imagine or that have a staying power beyond what we can imagine. One of my favorite things to teach my students, especially in the undergrad, about is the, the custom that Indo-European peoples have of carrying the bride across the, uh, the threshold of the house on the wedding night. And all the Indo-European peoples do this, um, whether they're in India, uh, now in America, and, uh, and yet the Indo-European peoples haven't been one people since perhaps uh, three or 4,000 BC when they were one people on the north shores of the Black Sea and the Caspian Sea. And yet this tradition, this ritual has remained. Languages have come, been born and died and disappeared. Writing didn't exist when that tradition of carrying the bride over the threshold started. And yet the tradition endures. And so we see with our own eyes that there can be repositories of meaning and tradition that are far older than we can imagine, that have a staying power. I like to say that ritual is the hard drive of the human race. It's really in liturgies that meanings are encoded and preserved for centuries and millennia to come. When uh, a very popular atheist writer, I mean he he was a self-identified atheist writer, science fiction writer Isaac Asimov wanted to postulate how scientists might uh, preserve information through the future if they knew a dark age was coming, he said what they would do is create a kind of a, a priesthood, he thought, and instruct the priesthood to preserve the holy rituals. so, I tell this story because uh, it happened to me, I don't mean the Yakima Indian story, but something like this happened in my own life. And it began with a, a student that I had at, uh, at Holy Cross, who uh, brought to me a puzzle for which I did not have an answer. But I discovered that it was there in the tradition of the church, that there were people within the church who remembered century upon century things that others have forgotten. So the student was a a Romanian student and he was uh, from another university in the Boston area and he came to me and asked if he could uh, take a course with me on a kind of private study basis because I normally teach that course, let's say, in the fall, and he wanted to take it in the spring. And one of the rules of life at seminary that I've, uh, that's a very uh, pretty strong rule of life, is that um, when, when you're asked to do something that is really beyond your strength um, and you say yes, that's when the blessings come. So as the student asked me to do this, I realized, well, my plate is already full, I should say no, but something tells me if I say yes, uh, some blessing will come. So I I did say yes, and every week we met at a, a cafe near Boston College, and we went through the books of a course I teach called The Ethics of Beauty, and week by week he just brought very interesting and intelligent questions. And at a certain point, he came to me with this following passage. And it's a, it's a difficult-to-follow to passage, so just stay with me. And he just said, what does this mean? The passage is from a book called Microcosm and Mediator. It's a, a big book, a very well-written book, about one of our most important theologians. His name is Saint Maximus the Confessor. He lived in the 7th century AD and uh, this book about his thought has the following passage within it. It says, within the common Christian tradition, and here the author means common between east and west of the Mediterranean world, within this common tradition, we found a clear difference of emphasis. In the eastern monastic line of thinking, the sin of pride is subordinated to the sin of sensuality. In other words, focus on the sin of sensuality first. But in Augustine and the western tradition, It is the sin of sensuality which is subordinated. In other words, focus, let's say, on humility first. We must therefore go further and ask, which of these alternatives within the common tradition does Saint Maximus follow? From what we have seen, the answer must be that the saint stands closer to the Eastern alternative, the concept of an attachment to the body as decisive for a sinful life is never abandoned by him, not even in relation to the higher vices of pride. For these are indirectly dependent on sensual affection, though this, of course, does not imply a negative evaluation of the body and the sensible world in themselves." So that's a long quote, and if you're confused by it, i have to say I certainly was when I heard it, and I had no idea really what it meant. And uh, when a student comes to you and says, well, Dr. Petitsis, what does this mean? This book, uh, one of the most respected books on the tradition of the Church Fathers, says that this is a very important thing. What is your answer? And when all you can say is, I don't know, of course your mind starts to work. So I had no idea what the author was talking about. Of particular difficulty for me was the notion that for the orthodox, according to the orthodox view, the sensual sins, the sins uh, connected to the body, are worse, or at least more decisive than the intellectual sins, like pride is this the case? Aren't we told that rather it is the West that is somehow afraid of sensuality and that the East is known for its deep humility? So I consulted a number of academic specialists about the passage and I promise we'll get to a good answer here soon. Um... And we we all sort of agreed either the author had it backwards it's the east that is at peace with the body and emphasizes humility or we just didn't know what it meant still something troubled me somehow I realized that this was an essential passage about the life of our church and yet I had not found my Yakima Indians yet to explain to me uh the meaning of this these words that were in a sense in a different language to me so a few weeks after my discussions with fellow theologians this is really just the way it happened I uh, I was walking around campus just thinking and I saw a a van of, of our seminary students was loading up and they were headed for one of the monasteries for a two night stay and I just said is there any room in the van said, there's one seat left. I said, I'm coming. I'll buy a toothbrush on the way. And that's that's what I did. I had no luggage, no packing, nothing. I just jumped on. And I did buy a toothbrush on the way. Nice one, the soft bristles. And uh, on the third day of my stay there at the monastery, we had a question and answer session with the abbot. So People were asking questions, and I tried to, you know, ask him in my best uh, modern Greek uh, the question. And I said, "Here, here, this is that this this person, Afdoso Lars Tunberg, you know, this <laughs> Lars Tunberg, this Swedish expert on the Church Fathers, says that for the East, the sensual sins." Uh, should be the primary concern even before pride while in the West they thought the opposite is this correct? and that's why I say that I had this moment where um, I met someone who was a carrier of a tradition and who knew the answer to my question Because when I asked the abbot this question, which, as as I say, at this point, to me, still was almost a meaningless question. I mean, I didn't understand its significance at all. Um, His entire aspect changed. And I I realized that I had asked him, in a sense, the, the best question of any of the people. I mean, that wasn't my intention. But I saw that for him it was the most important question. It concerned the very meaning of his life. That that passage somehow concerned the very meaning of his life. And this I had not expected. I expected he might know the answer, but I hadn't expected it would be so central. And he said, to answer this question, he said, we we first must ask, what is the entire purpose and aim of the monastic life? So, again, I was really struck, but somehow I had stumbled in asking him that really the very crux of his life, he said, the purpose of the, of the monk, he said, is to place the mind in the heart and there to focus our attention on the name of Jesus. The purpose of the monk is to place the mind in the heart and there to focus our attention on the name of Jesus. He says, this is is what we call, this word, noetic prayer. But when we attempt to pray in this way, he continued, what happens? So you're trying to, let's say you're sitting in your room, and it could be any of us, trying to say the Jesus prayer. What happens? He says, maybe you start to feel tired or uncomfortable in your chair or you're hungry or you're cold in other words, some aspect of your body causes you to lose attention or maybe an image comes into your mind an image even a a good image and instead of thinking about Christ now you're thinking about wouldn't it be nice if uh, you know such and such thing would happen Or, he says, sometimes just out of the blue sky, feelings arise. We have a a memory of someone who harmed us, and these feelings of anger come. Or we have a memory of something we desired, and feelings of desire overtake us. And and in one or more of these ways, he said, our mind is pulled away from concentration on the name of Christ within the heart and we lose prayer. He said, when we start thinking about these things and fall in love with these things, says, this is an aspect of self-love. Self-love is, is fine in the right way at the right time, but at this moment when we're trying to forget ourselves for just a moment and love Christ, it's, a, it's the obstacle. He says, if you can cut off self-love by just falling in love with Christ, he says that all the other sins and temptations will lose their power and fall, fall away. And the, the final thing he said, and this, this too made a big impression on me, he's, he's kind of changed his aspect. And he said, as for pride, he said, it is a passion like the other passions. If you cut off the self-love, then you will cut it at its root. You don't have to give it this particular significance. This was an important event for me, this encounter with the abbots, which occurred, I don't know, in maybe 2008 or so. First, I was amazed to see that the central concern of Eastern monastics since at least the 4th century, we know, and, and probably much earlier, was still the central concern of orthodox monastics in the 21st century. And that's why I opened with this story of the Yakima. Because that is a powerful thing, to think that the central concern of St. Maximus the Confessor is the central concern of an orthodox monk on the holy mountain today, or an orthodox nun in Ormelia today or in a Akritokhori, or an Orthodox nun in the Ukraine, or in Russia, or any of these places. They're still in the stream. And and that, that alone struck me as a giant relief. You know, there's someone out there who can tell me where the radioactivity lies. Someone remembers. Someone will tell us. So that notion of an unbroken chain And in fact, they talk about this on Mount Athos. They say, say, of course, more important is the apostolic succession of our hierarchs. That's more important. It's foundational for the church. But they said there also exists an unbroken chain of spiritual fatherhood and spiritual advice given from one generation to another to be focused on the life of prayer in the right way. The second thing this encounter uh, made me think of was that, you know, if I'm going to be an academic theologian, if I'm going to be in the library or in the classroom or writing papers or um, attending an academic conference, that's not going to be enough. It's not going to be enough unless I also cultivate a strong connection to the life of prayer. excuse me, not just by trying to pray but by learning from those who are succeeding in their prayer. It was written in the books. It was written in English. I mean that quote I read was English. I mean, might as well not have been for all I understood it. But it was there. But how could I understand it unless I had someone who was living it? Libraries are important. So are laboratories. In the church, the life of prayer, though the life of being a pastor and liturgy is where the ongoing research is done, where the, the chain is unbroken. There was another thing that uh, that surprised me about this encounter with the abbot, and that was that I could see what he was saying this idea that we the the person trying to pray let 's say the Jesus prayer has this communion with Christ, and then some sensuality pulls us away. I could see, ah, that is the Adam and Eve story. Eve was tempted by this sensual object, this forbidden fruit that seemed to be desirable. And that's where where things went astray. She she was curious about that image. She began to investigate that image. Our forefathers in paradise, Adam and Eve, they enjoyed an unbroken concentration upon Christ. The unbroken concentration which we in prayer still aim for. So Eve wasn't just someone who lived a long time ago. Sometimes we think if Adam and Eve hadn't sinned, everything would be square. No, it's each of us. Each of us faces the same temptation. That oh, that that sensuality looks interesting. That image, it looks it looks desirable, and we chase after it. At this point, when I left the uh, the abbot with that kind of thought, I was impressed. By the things he said, I was grateful to God for the fact that, oh, I I took a risk in teaching this class and it led to something important. But I hadn't gone uh, further in my understanding of all that it implied. To do that, I had to uh, take some other steps. This was just the beginning. This idea that the Orthodox way of prayer. begins in this this simple cutting off of self-love through love for Christ. It took me two other things to get from that to an understanding of the importance of beauty for the church's spirituality, one that sort of tied everything together. The first of the other steps was the life and the writings of Elder Porphyrios, is a name that you may hear, and the second was the commonality between the writings of Elder Porphyrios and a saint that's very important for our theology, his name is Saint Dionysius the Areopagite. Let's begin with Elder Porphyrios. You may know his story that uh, he reposed in the 1990s. He really was a 20th century saint. Um, When he was young, his father went away to America, as they called it. In other words, he went away to Central America to work on the building of the Panama Canal. And he himself was sent away at a young age of 8 or 9 years old, even younger, to work in the store of a family friend. So Porphyrios, as a young child, was in a situation of being separate from his family and of having to work hard. There were older boys who bossed him around a lot. And he was not a great reader. He couldn't read with great facility. But somehow he came across a book about the life of St. John the hut dweller, who was an ascetic on the holy mountain. And the young boy who would become St. Porfirios. he fell in love with this saint, his life. He would read the story carefully in his halting way, and he felt this is the life. A, a, a fire was kindled in his heart. And so, he saved his pennies, and on two or three occasions, he told his boss, I'm going to go see my family this weekend, and instead, he caught a boat north from Athens, where he was working, all the way to Thessaloniki, to try to go to the Holy Mountain. At a a young age, at age 10, uh, at age 11, he tried this, but he couldn't find the courage. And finally, at the age of 12, he found the courage, and he ran away from home, and He wound up on the holy mountain and two brothers who were monks there took him in. They saw that he was uh, committed and that he was all alone and he needed someone to watch out for him and they made him a monk and he very quickly became uh, a rather holy monk. Very quickly, by the age of 19, he was so sick he had to return uh, to his home island of Evia. It's a long island off the east coast of mainland Greece. And he, he, he met again his parents. His father wept to see that his son was still alive. His father was now back from America. And his mother was quite angry that he had run away and not tell them where he was for seven years. You can imagine. So, don't try this at home. kids. <laughs> Uh, But Elder Porphyrios uh, was right away given great gifts of grace. Somehow, uh, he was such a soul that he had the gift of understanding hearts, of sometimes seeing what was happening in other parts of Greece or the world, and he had this, this uh, deep holy quality, and he maintained that. He was ordained as a priest at a young age, and soon he was made a chaplain at a hospital near Ammonia Square in Athens, and he remained as the hospital chaplain for 38 years. Eventually he retired to a convent he built with his mother, uh, north of Athens, a couple hours north of Athens. And he has many uh, wonderful sayings which people are uh, inspired by. And one of them is the following. He says, no one ever became holy by fighting evil. Let evil be. Fall in love with Christ. He says, you 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 focus on Christ. You fall in love with Christ. and." That's a wonderful saying, and it's a nice saying, but in the light of my discussion with the abbot and this quote from the, the this great scholar of the Church Fathers, I realized, oh, that's what they're talking about when they say, just fall in love with Christ. Cut off self-love, cut off a kind of a, a attachment to your own sensuality, and fall in love with Christ. Everything else will then fall into place. Later on, Elder Porphyrios, we now know him as Saint Porphyrios, he was formally canonized, uh, I think in, was it 2013 maybe? Just, about, just a few years ago. He says, imagine, he says, that you're in a room that's entirely dark. He says, what will you gain if you try to strike the darkness? It, it will still be dark. But he says, if you can make just a pinhole in one of the walls to let the light come in, Even if it's the smallest pinhole, he says, you'll be able to see everything in the room. In other words, first is the focus on Christ, forgetting the self, focusing on Christ. Then, he says, all the other temptations and passions will find their their proper understanding. He says in another place, if you're about to go into church and you realize that your heart is cold... He says, Instead of going into the church with a cold heart, he says, pause at the exit, at the entrance to the church and call to mind some aspect of Christ's love for you or of the holiness of a saint. Let your heart be warmed up. Then he says you can begin your struggle for prayer. So again, it's this falling in love with Christ that's the first step. He says in another place, to be a Christian, you must become a poet. To be be a Christian, you must become a poet. In other words, you must fall in love with the beauty of the church's poetry and you must develop a poetic soul. So... At this point as I was reading uh, St. Porphyrios, things were starting to come together for me. I had this notion that our first task is not to fight pride, but simply to fall in love with Christ. I had that uh, in the, one of the finest scholars of the Church Fathers, this Lars Tunberg, whom I mentioned earlier. And I understood in the life of the abbot and his answer that that was still the preferred path. The preferred path is to fall in love with Christ first. And from there, on that foundation, unfold your struggle to be good and to understand the truth of things. But I came to the writings of yet another saint. The writings of St. Dionysius the Areopagite. As I mentioned before, St. Dionysius the Areopagite is one of our most important uh, church theologians. Um, We don't know necessarily who he was. Um, Certainly, his writings aren't really popular in the church until the 400s or late 400s A.D. But they're written as if he were the St. Dionysius whom St. Paul to when he came to Athens in the book of Acts chapter 17. And Saint Dionysius, he says the same thing. He says the same thing in his own way. He says, first of all, that evil is simply the lack of eros, the lack of this warm-hearted love for Christ within us. It's when we cool down in our love for Christ, that evil starts to take over and starts to turn our powers in negative directions. And he says something even more interesting. Saint Dionysius says the following account of how God created the world. Let me see if I can find it here. He says that God in His goodness and His love for the world was so great that, they, that His goodness and love could not be contained within Himself. And so God spilled over outside Himself into the realm outside Himself, whatever that might mean, and non-being, that which was not yet created, fell in love with God's appearing. It was overcome by a a madness, a divine eros for God's beauty. And when non-being fell in love with God in this way, it repented, it left itself behind, it entered the realm of existence. And this is how God created the world. By revealing his goodness and his beauty to the world, or rather, in his goodness, revealing his beauty to the world, non-being fell in love with that beauty and rushed towards him, taking on form in the process. So once again, we have the same path. We have the same uh, schema or description of Creation of salvation of the spiritual struggle first we fall in love with God's beauty with his appearing the Greek word for that appearing of God is his theophany we fall in love with his appearing then we are immediately called to a kind of repentance we see how beautiful he is and we want to leave ourselves behind and run after him Only in doing this, only in falling in love for Christ, do we now have the strength and the context for moral struggle. This moral struggle is our reaction to God's goodness. So first we're drawn to his beauty, then his goodness, and St. Dionysius says everything in creation is charged in this way by God's love for God's beauty and love for God's goodness. And in that way it becomes true. In that way it becomes what it is. So this is the threefold path of orthodox spirituality. To fall in love with Christ, my sweetest Christ and his beauty, take up the cross of being good like Him and in this way to become true. So that was that was my journey of understanding and um, I'm going to take questions just for a minute before I go on to unfold uh, how this uh, further related. But just to repeat it it started with this student asking about a difficult passage in a theological book, which I could not answer. And taking that to someone who in their life of prayer could explain it in a very simple way. Our first struggle is simply to fall in love with Christ, with his beauty. And to see this message confirmed in a great saint like uh, Elder Porphyrios, Saint Porfirios, and his the lofty heights of holiness that he achieved by always beginning with Eros for God's beauty. And from there... Uh, purifying that eros through ascetic struggle taking on the moral challenges and then learning as much as he could about the spiritual life and finally achieving a deep humility and to see that if this was true as a spiritual path in Maximus, in the ancient fathers, in the monastics of today, in St. Porphyrios that it's confirmed in the writings of this great saint Dionysius the Areopagite who just said that this is the very way the world was created. So the path of salvation is the path of creation retraced. Let me give two, before I take questions, two kind of um, examples from everyday life. had a student who said very profoundly about this uh, this patristic understanding of spirituality she said before she said before about the age of eight she said I had never heard of God my family was entirely unreligious and she said I then when I was about eight my parents began going to church I went to Sunday school for the first time I heard about the love of Christ for the first time and I heard about the The beauty of this way. In other words, she had an encounter with Theophany at the age of eight. And then this is what she said. She said, Before that encounter, I can almost not imagine what my inner world was like. She said, Mostly, she said, it was a passionate uh, attachment to one of her hobbies. She said, and fighting with other little girls. She said, That was my inner world. That's all I had. And, and then I encountered the Gospel. I encountered Theophany. Now moral struggle became possible. It became possible to correct my own faults or to ask God for forgiveness. I could become myself. She could go on to become the, the impressive and wonderful person that she is now. But that's just one example. We can each think of some corresponding or similar story from our own lives. How many of us have searched in a kind of... uh, It's a kind of enlightenment, but also a kind of uncertainty or even doubt. And then we come into the Orthodox Church for the first time, and maybe a divine liturgy for the first time. And we behold that beauty, and now our life begins... Now everything starts and out of a kind of darkness or non-being, we step step out into the light and we begin to become real. We can think of a third example, the Russian uh, uh, chronicles describing their search in the tenth century AD for the right religion and they sent emissaries to all the great religions of the world. But they reported back from Constantinople, they said, when we went there, they said, said, we did not know if we were in heaven or on earth. They entered the Divine Liturgy in Hagia Sophia. Imagine that this was, let's say this was in the 9, I don't know if it's the 970s, 980s AD. The church was 400 years old then a very old church today they said, they said we did not know if we were in heaven or on earth they said all we know is that there God dwells among men and the, the, their third great saying about this encounter with Theophany they said we cannot forget that beauty for we cannot forget that beauty and that encounter with the beautiful was the beginning of this long arc of orthodox history in Russia and Ukraine so again it's that encounter with beauty and there's, there's, a, there's a, an additional element by the way to that story, these emissaries came they reported to Vladimir about all the world's religions, they told him which ones were, were not beautiful and what they'd seen in Hagia Sophia and, and then they said something they said you can do as you like this is what they said to their king you can do as, as you like about converting to this faith as for us we're going back That's an incredible extra detail to this story you don't usually hear. As for us, we're going back, right? That intoxication with theophany, with the gospel message that what they saw... Let me make sure my phone is off. I don't think that's me, but anything's... No, mine's on airplane. That encounter encounter with the beautiful uh, is the beginning of their life. Many of us, too, the first time, let's say, we just fall in love with our spouse or that, that important person, we almost cannot remember what our life was like before that encounter. That first vision of the beautiful in our life. And everything, you know, everything has followed subsequent to that. Everything has... Uh, um, everything has flowed from that and, and that's what the this eastern line of uh, spirituality that I mentioned in that difficult passage is trying to say fall in love with Christ fall in love with that beauty overcome your self love and fall in love with Christ and let the journey begin there let me give one more example when I was 19 years old um, at, at Georgetown University, as, as Father Matthew mentioned, I heard for the first time about the, some of the saints and elders, like Elder Porphyrios, like Elder Paisios, that were still alive at that time in Greece, and elder elders in Serbia and Romania and places like that. and. Um, The the person, the young person telling me about these these different holy people of today, he said that there is a tradition that in every age there's one person who is the holiest person on earth. I mean, just the thought, to me as a 19-year-old college sophomore, that there might be a person who is the holiest person on earth, that is the most beautiful thing. That that just that thought, I, I changed entirely the course of my life, and I, and I said, "Who is it?" Well, people disagree, of course. Um, but some people say it really was Elder Porphyrios. and 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 some people th- thought it was Elder Father Archimandrite Sophrony Sakharov, who was a, a Russian um, Orthodox monk living in England, and. So, I, I resolved that as soon as I finished college, I wouldn't do anything until I met Father Sophroni. And um, three years later, uh, just after I turned uh, 22, I was at his monastery for that very purpose. In my mind, I was there to get the blessing of the holiest man on earth. Just that, 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 that. That allure of that possibility—that there could be such holiness. So, a story I tell my students is that I was at the monastery for several for several days, and I was working uh, planting trees. Actually, so happened the trees are still there. I went back a couple years ago was uh, on the way to Greece with the students. Um, and and I looked up and I saw Father Sophrony for the first time coming down the path, leaning on the, the arm of a nun. He was very old by that point, in his mid nineties. Excuse me, boss. You a text message. That's a good time to get a drink of water, I think. And as I saw him, the thought that came to my mind was: I laughed with joy, and I said, "Wow! So that." is what a human being looks like was a, a completely unmedita- unpremeditated uh, reaction to that spiritual beauty. It, it, I have to say, it changed my life. It, it changed the, the course of the career I felt. but, but, but I, I pursued. But certainly it started those three years before. Just the thought that there could be such holiness is such a revelation of God's beauty in the world and His goodness and His truth. But it's such a beautiful thought that it can it can spark us to um the possibility of uh, a life transforming journey um, maybe uh, well, well let me just see and before I take any questions let me just see how we're doing time wise it's eight o'clock now should I stop at 8:10 father or or stop now or okay let's do ten more minutes Um So this is sometimes called the threefold path of spiritual, spiritual life in Orthodoxy. We know this from the Philokalia, from other writings, and it's sometimes the path that I describe as beauty, goodness, and truth is described by three other words, purification, illumination, and deification. And in the first step, it involves this falling in love with God's appearing, with his beauty, his mildness. In the light of of falling in love, now it becomes possible for us to to leave our our old life behind. This is what we see in the apostles when Christ went through Judea and Palestine and called them something about his presence intoxicated them they left their nets behind they left the tax collector table behind they left whatever uh, old career or or encounters they had behind and they stepped out with him and they began to be illumined they began to understand how to love their neighbor the apostles began to hear the parables and to see in these parables the path of life in Christ. They understood that they were supposed to help feed the poor and, and be concerned for the sick and uh, to uh, stand up for a certain kind of justice in the world. And this, all of this constituted their illumination and finally, as they followed Christ throughout his life, through his crucifixion and resurrection, through Pentecost, um, and finally through their own martyrdoms, they were deified. They became, that is to say, truly themselves. They became their true selves. That is the the threefold path. And for those of us who do not have... Uh, Christ in front of us, let's say, walking uh, uh, through our town or village calling us, nevertheless we do feel that announcement of good news in our heart. We do feel that theophany. We do feel that there is some holiness or some spiritual beauty that is beyond us in our current state. And in feeling that, we realize that we've been chosen. Someone has called our name. Someone knows us. Someone knows the deepest desire of our heart, which is for this spiritual peace and this spiritual radiance. And so we too, like the apostles, or like the monks, or like whoever it is, like our ancestors in the faith, we leave behind non-being. We leave behind the formlessness and ugliness of our old life and we step out on the path of carrying our cross with Christ for others and doing this in a consistent way over a lifetime we expect deification whether now or in the age to come but really now because we, St. Dionysius tells us very clearly, he says, when does deification begin? Theosis, or this, the infusing of the human person with God's divine life, he says it begins when the non-Christian leaves the front door of his house in order to walk to the church and be inscribed as a catechumen. Just from the moment he leaves the door to his house, his deification is real. It's, it's incipient, but it's real. And so this threefold path unfolds in a, in a glorious, non linear way. We're renouncing self love, we have arrows for Christ. We have this uh, illumination that comes with almsgiving, with helping, and showing empathy. And finally, a lifetime of that, or even just even a moment of that, is sufficient for our deification. Well, thank you so much for listening tonight. Um, tomorrow we will pick up the discussion with the themes of chastity and empathy in the morning. And then in the afternoon, we have a, um, a slide presentation on spiritual beauty in art and architecture. And it's a, a, a brief presentation with some slides to help us reflect upon um, the way uh, uh, buildings and, um, and art can convey as well a kind of uh, a revelation of God's love for us. Um, yeah. So, any any questions uh, that that uh, anyone uh, has, and then we'll we'll uh, break for the dessert at uh, probably pretty soon. I think I went over the time. Yes, uh, Heidi, did you have a question? Uh, Do yes.
0: you think the quote from Dostoevsky about beauty will save the world is a, I'm talking about what you've taught us tonight?
1: I think so because the alternative is not, uh, let's say, um, is not morality in the form of politics or truth in the form of philosophy. But the actual revelation of God's love for us and our ability to still recognize that and, and respond to it. And, and I th- I think, and I'm not sure, but I think that the character who says that, beauty will save the world, this is you know a good fact to know because many people read this, but they don't have the access. Is referring to childhood memories of the pre-sanctified liturgies during Lent. That's the, the particular quality of beauty that... Is thought to be, in a sense, the highest, which is interesting and, and available to us. Uh, any any other comments or questions before we? Yes. Thank you.
0: Um, you began with this question of the nature of sin and whether the West view ah, yes. is better than, or is different than the East view. And I was thinking when you were saying that, that there was a, maybe the missing third view that they're equal. And then you said that you talked to this monk, and he seemed to say that. So that, I was kind of wondering what you thought about that original puzzle that you gave. And then also... When he said that, he also said that the thing that distracted him the most from prayer was sensuality.
1: Well, we said that would, that would distract anyone, that just just any of us when we try to concentrate uh, I don't mean intellectually but spiritually it's some image or some physical weakness or just some feeling that will take us away um, and in that sense if just for those few moments a day we can cut that off then this this, this communion with Christ will fill us and will bring everything else into its proper let's say shape um, so, yes, here's, there is a way to interpret um, self-love is identified with a kind of hubris, and although we intend to interpret hubris as pride, really in the church, it means something more like a fa- failure of aesthetic judgment. So in a sense, the the proper attention to beauty, then goodness, then truth, that is a rational path. When those envoys were in Constantinople and they understood the beauty, that was a rational thing. Even though there was no logic or arguments or philosophies, it was beyond those things, it was still full of reason, let's say. So in that sense, we can say, that if we, if we fight hubris, in other words if we're grateful, if we aren't self-reliant, that we're fighting pride as the first step. But the reason why it's important to say it in the right way is because if you begin to talk about the intellectual passions, then you make the spiritual life the life of the mind and you lose the way of the heart. And. Uh, Orthodoxy brought together three, three cultures the, the, the Greek mind the Semitic heart and the, let's say the Roman body and organization and from our perspective as Orthodox Western Christianity loses that Semitic element not completely the monasteries try to keep it but eventually the theologians in the universities take over and religion becomes more uh, about the life of the mind. And there's reactions, it becomes about the life of the emotions and the feelings and, you know, rock music or something. But the integration is lost. That, that's, that's our perspective, at any rate. Maybe one more question and then a dessert. Okay,
0: sounds like everyone's ready for dessert. Thank you, everyone. <laughs> For those of you who
1: don't work tomorrow, I'll see you tomorrow.
0: <laughs> Thank you, Dr. Tim. Um, so we'll go to dessert now, and then tomorrow morning we have uh, liturgy begins at 9. We'll have pre-communion prayers starting at 8.30. and. Uh, we'll be commemorating St. Arsenios the Cappadocian who was the one who baptized St. Paisios so it's a wonderful blessing that this happens to be the day of our retreat so that we can properly celebrate him um, so please join us for liturgy at 9am and then we'll start the retreat following that after a little continental breakfast